Do you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14? <coughs> Excuse me. We finished off at the end of chapter 13. These were, in some measure, Matthew 13 as we worked through it, was what commonly known as the, as the kingdom parables. And uh, we kind of took out of that that the parables are things that Jesus said that, that, that they're sort of earthly stories with heavenly meanings. And uh, it's something that you have to think about. It's something that you have to apply your, your mind and your understanding to. And, and we see what the parables were in hindsight. Why? Because... It happened in the past and the Holy Spirit has revealed things to us as we're Christians. People, if you took these parables to people who have never read the Bible or who have never known anything about Jesus and you just read them to them without giving them any understanding of it, they would think, what on earth is all that about? So there has to be that degree of understanding. You have to put yourself in that position where you can allow God to give you the understanding and the opportunity to uh, to understand what God is, what Jesus is talking about here. But now here at the start of chapter 14, we have a change attack. Matthew goes into a more historical perspective here now, and that's one good thing about the Bible that no matter where you look in the Bible, apart from maybe the poetic books like the Psalms and the Proverbs, although they are prophetic as well, most of the Bible is there's some sort of chronology to it there's some sort of timeline to it there's some sort of history to it and it's just the same in Matthew's gospel here there's a history behind it you won't find that in any of the writings of the Mormons or any of the writings of the Jehovah's Witnesses etc you won't find it in Hindu books these, these are all sort of poetic books that use Islam their, their Quran is just a, a series of sayings that's put together and, and you can make out of it what you like there's no chronology to it there's no history to it indeed when we were talking last week about the sort of the infiltration of paganism within the church and today has been the 21st of June in the Midsummer's Day there's a great yoga rally in Delhi this morning, 60,000 people are celebrating Yoga Day. And uh, unfortunately within the church it seems to be becoming more and more popular. And it's something that we really need to try and avoid. Um, it's, a, it's not just a physical exercise. It's, there's a spiritual thing involved in yoga. And it's not a very kindly spirit. Its true name is Kundalini Yoga. And Kundalini in the Hindu or the Hindi is serpent yoga and uh, it really does refer to pagan gods and goddesses anyway that's just a, an aside this morning the fact that it was a yoga day uh, I thought it was the bear they were talking about for Disney World you know? yogi bear <laughs> so we get here to Matthew chapter 14 and, and Matthew sticks in a bit of history here and it's good that we see history within the Bible because it gives us an idea that this was something that was real. That the story of Jesus and the things surrounding him were not just some sort of made up thing. And so we see that at chapter 14 at verse 1, at that time Herod the Tetrach heard the reports about Jesus and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. <coughs> he is risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, 
We're going to get an explanation of what Herod had done to John the Baptist in the next few verses. But do you see what guilt and superstition are tormenting this guy? He knows that what he'd done to John the Baptist was wrong. And yet he couldn't bring himself. He didn't know in some measure how to repent. And that's sometimes what happens to people in, in their own lives. That we maybe do something that's totally off the wall. Something that it might be public. It might, you might have murdered somebody and gone to jail. And, and the stigma of it sticks to you for the rest of your life. Or it might be something private that you've done that nobody else knows about. So you just stuff it down and keep it within a cage within you. But it affects your whole life. And there's only one person that can lift that from you. And we know that it's Jesus. So this superstition. John is dead. John the Baptist at this point in time is dead. Herod the Tetrarch. The Tetrarch was just a word that they used to describe someone who ruled over a fourth part of a region. A quarter of it. And this was the, the Syro-Judean region. And... and Herod was ruling over the Galilee and Perea and the Decapolis. Now, I've got to explain to you that Herod is a, is a surname. I think I've explained that to you before. So we had Herod the Great, that was his surname. It was almost like saying, like Tatan the Great or whatever, you know, that's, that's his surname. And then we, we had three sons, two of them born to the same mother and one born to another mother. And there was a Herod Antipas who's this guy that we're talking about here, the ruler of Galilee. And there was Herod Archelaus, who ruled in Judea and Samaria and further south. And then there was Herod Philip, who ruled further north of Galilee, up around the Lebanon and that sort of area. So that whole area was part of the, the, Syro, the Roman Syro-Judean region. And so Herod Antipas is this guy here. And we'll either refer to him just as Antipas or just as Herod. People, we get confused, there's that many Herods. Even right through the book of Acts, we've got Herod Agrippa and Herod Agrippa II and all of these guys. So it can become quite confusing. This guy was Herod the Great's son. He came to power just about the time that Jesus was born. One of the reasons that, that... Joseph and Mary took Jesus back to Nazareth was because Archelaus had taken over in Judea and Samaria and the guy was a nutter. I mean, he would would have quite readily, if he got any wind of it that this prophetic child had come back into his domain, he would have murdered Jesus without uh, without any quibble. So God works all things to the good. So Jesus, in some measure, ended up in Nazareth not because... Not because Joseph and Mary wanted that, but because they had to. Because they, they, they feared for his life. So now Herod had arrested. This is the story that happened maybe six months or a year prior to this. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. So we've got this guy Herod Antipas who had arrested John and bound him because of the situation with Herodias. Herodias was his brother Philip's wife up north and Herod Antipas had had illegally got rid of his own wife and had seduced uh, Philip's wife and was living with her openly. 
And John was constantly. It wasn't a case that John had made some sort of passing remark about the relationship. The tense that's used there is what they call the imperfect tense, which means that it's an ongoing thing, that every opportunity that John got to say something to or about Herod Antipas, he said it. And it was a, a thorn in his side. And it was more a thorn in Herodias' side, because she was the target of John's, uh, John's spleen at that time. So he illegally left his first wife and seduced Herodias. Antipas, Herod Antipas wanted to be a big shot. He wanted to be a great guy. He wanted to be popular. And so he had applied to Caligula, who was the, who was the Roman emperor at that point in time. Now, any of you know the history of Caligula. Caligula was crackers as well. But he had applied to Caligula <coughs> for the purpose of being a king. He wasn't allowed to call himself king, although Herod the Great had called himself the king of the Jews, and he was the king over that region. When the region had been split up into four, his sons were not allowed to call themselves kings, but Antipas had, uh, had tried his hand with Caligula and said, you know, if you make me king, I'll be better than my brothers, and you know, I'll be your loyal servant forever. Caligula refused to make him king. Indeed, it got to the stage where Agrippa, Antipas's son, shocked him to the Romans and made up stories that Antipas was actually treacherous to the Roman Empire. And eventually it came to such a stage that Antipas and Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, were exiled to Gaul. Now Gaul in the Roman senses, northern France, away in the boundaries of the Roman Empire, they were exiled. And apparently, from the historical evidence I can gather, the two of them ended up committing suicide. That um, was a joint pact of suicide, Herod Antipas and Herodias. Once they'd been exiled to Gaul, they thought this is the end of it, so they, they'd taken their own life. So that was the kind of background and the, the sort of ongoing thing we heard Antipas and Herodias. And I want you to tell you that because I want you to understand again, I want you to put this to you, that this is real. These things happened. And in the middle of this was John the Baptist, and in the middle of this was Jesus of Nazareth. There was a great political turmoil, a great political merry-go-round going on at the time. I mean, the, the, the Herod family were totally psychotic. I mean, they murdered each other on a fairly regular basis just because they thought that they, had, uh, that they were speaking against them. Anyway, at verse 5 here, Matthew tells us, On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted. And had John beheaded in the prison, his head was brought in in a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. We know from other Gospels that Herodias' daughter was Salome. Now, the way people dealt with each other, this guy Philip, who was Herodias' first husband, was actually her uncle. That was uh, Herod the Great's brother. So she had married her uncle, and had a child by her uncle. 
I mean, it was, there was all sorts of interbreeding and real problems going on in here. The pe- they ended up, they were all crazy because of this interbreeding and intermarriage that they did. But anyway, Herodias was obviously a very manipulative woman. And she convinced Salome to dance for Herod. Herod was obviously very sexually interested in Salome. And Salome, it says here, if we work it out, well, if we try to work it out, she was probably about 16 or 17 year old. And by all accounts, a very attractive young woman. And when it says here that she danced for the guests, it's more than probable that she did a striptease. Now, for a royal princess to do that, let alone anybody to do that, would have been a would have been a shock to most people. But Herod was so intent on this young woman that when she did this dance, he had promised her before she did it, if you do this dance for me, I'll give you anything you ask for. And so her mother had whispered in her ear, you do it, you make a good job of this, and I want the head of John the Baptist here. And the text, the context of that there is that she didn't want it done at some time tomorrow when maybe Antipas had repented and decided, well, maybe I better no kill John. She wanted it now. And that was what Salome had told her at Antipas. I want this head of John the Baptist now. In the midst of all these guests, Herod couldn't. He feared men more than he feared God. He couldn't stand up for himself. He was a weak man. He couldn't stand up for himself and say, no, no. This is not going to happen. I'm not going to kill John the Baptist because he knew it was wrong. You know, and there's many people today, there's many men today who are more worried about what men think than about what God thinks. And it's something that as Christians we need to learn not to be. We need to be able to stand in the Word of God and stand firm on it. And when anybody laughs at us or persecutes us or gives us a hard time for it then we've got to take it back to God and say Lord you are my strength and my shield you are my salvation I can't give in to men I can't be put down by the fear of men so of course you can imagine the situation this is Herod's birthday you can imagine the lavish birthday party he would have it was probably done somewhere at Caesarea out in the coast that was the big town that his father had built for um, Tiberius the emperor and so <clears throat> you have all your guests sitting there to have a stripper at your birthday party I don't suppose that's unusual nowadays right enough but anyway to have a stripper at your birthday party and then for this guard to walk in with this great bloody head on a platter uh, and, and give it to Herodias it must have been quite a sight and the main dance to me wasn't the dance that Salome did the main dance was that Herod was dancing to Herodias' tune that was the problem and it's always a <clears throat> it's always a difficult situation when men allow their position as the spiritual head of the family to be usurped by manipulative women and I don't mean that, in a, please don't take that in the wrong sense. I totally accept that men and women are equal in a marriage and in every situation in life. But we all have different jobs to do. And a man should be the spiritual head of his family. And if he's not, then he may be indeed caught in trouble as, uh, as Herod Antipas did here. 
So we get that passed with that. That puts a timeline on this for us. That here we have a situation where the word of God is not accepted at all. Herod Antipas, Herodias, Salome, all of them are doing their own thing. And whoever stands in their way like John the Baptist would be killed. And it's a strange ministry, of course, I said before we joined the Baptist, you know. He started his ministry six months before Jesus started his. He never saw anybody saved. He never did any miracles. And he got his head chopped off at the end of it. Six months. And yet, he was a blessed man. The last of the Old Testament prophets. And so, Matthew tells us this because... It triggered a reaction from Jesus and his disciples. In verse 13 it says, When Jesus heard what happened, in other words, what happened to John the Baptist, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. And hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now we wonder, why did Jesus leave? Was Herod was Antipas was shouting the fact that this is this Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. His crazy mind had, had had sort of put it in that situation, and it would be easy to think that Jesus had left there because Herod Antipas might kill him as well, and that's always a possibility. But it was not out of cowardice that Jesus left. Jesus knew the Father's will in the situation. He knew that his time had not yet come. And he had to go from that situation. Jesus knew when the time would come for him to be delivered up into the hands of men. And it certainly wasn't at this point in time. When he got to the other side, he got into a boat. And we presume he got into a boat with his disciples. It would be virtually, well, it wouldn't be impossible to Jesus. But it would be virtually impossible to row a boat across the Lake of Galilee on your own. Um, but that's not to say that Jesus didn't do it but I presume his disciples were with him I'm quite sure they were and all of a sudden he comes off the boat and there's a multitude they've gone all the way around the long way across from just above where Tiberius was in, in the southwestern shores of the Lake of Galilee right across the seven or eight miles across the, the Sea of Galilee to the far side to basically to Gazenera and uh, when he got there, word had got out, Jesus is in a boat. Because if you stood on the top of the hills, like Mount Erbal and these places, you could see all the boats on the Sea of Galilee. You could figure out where he was going. You could see the boat going. You could actually see the far shore as well. So people had figured out that he's going to this remote area, this kind of hilly area on the eastern shore. And so they waited for him there. And when Jesus got off the boat, he was so touched by the multitude. He saw them coming in their droves. They were sick, they were lame, they were blind, they were deaf. There were demon-possessed people. And he had this great compassion for them. Now, that word compassion is something beyond anything I can even think about. It's a compassion to the stage where his whole physical, emotional, spiritual being is, is disturbed to the greatest depth. It's almost, it's almost to the point where you would physically, emotionally and spiritually break down. He had such a compassion for the people. And he saw them and he healed their sick. And as evening approached, 
at verse 15. The disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And one of the things that struck me about this is I read it again. Jesus never sends anyone away. If people go away, they go of their own volition. But Jesus never says to them, Go away. Even when the Pharisees who were dead against him, when they wanted to kill him, when they wanted to catch him out with their, with their strange questions and their loaded questions, never once did he say to them, Beat it. He always took them. He always spoke to them. He always gave them an answer. They might not have liked the answer he gave them, but he always gave them an answer. He never sent anybody away. If you want to listen or read a good sermon, Charles Spurgeon did a sermon on Jesus never sends anybody away. And it's a wonderful sermon. You should really read it. It's a really inspiring piece of uh, Bible literature. And Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. So he puts the onus on the disciples. I mean, I can imagine these disciples are going to look at this multitude, this huge array of people. Now it tells us in the story of this that there were 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Most commentators will estimate it between 10 and 12,000 people. Now that's a big church. A multitude of people. A multitude of people. And Jesus tells them, don't send them away. You give them something to eat. I mean, I can see the, the disciples rolling around in the beach laughing. He's kidding. You acted, you're going to laugh, Jesus. And yet, it was a real test of their faith. What are you guys going to do? You feed them. You find them something to eat. Don't send them away. These people were hungry. It was obvious that many of them had no food with them. In fact, the bulk of them had no food. They had just come. There would have been no need to send them away to buy food if they had food. The argument from the liberalists is, well, everybody had their lunch with them and they just shared it out and they all got something from it. But it was fairly obvious to Jesus and the disciples that these people didn't have any food with them. Otherwise, there would have been no point in sending them away. They were being sent away to get fed. How many times, how many times do people get sent away from Jesus to get fed, to get fed in the world? You know, these people are hungry. The people today are hungry. And the empty religions of this world offer them some ceremony or some empty words or some Hail Marys or Our Fathers and you'll be fine. The people are hungry. And the atheists and the skeptics try and convince them, well, you're not really hungry. It can be sorted some other way. The people are hungry. And the religious showman gives them videos and special lighting and cutting edge music. And that's supposed to meet their need. The people are hungry. And the entertainer gives them loud, fast action. So loud and fast, you don't even have time to think about it. Who is going to feed them? The people are hungry. We need to be a people of the word. We need to be a people that can bring that word in season. We need to know the word. 
We need to study the word. That when the time comes, God will bring to memory the things that you've learned and that you can feed somebody with. It's alright feeding a person physically, but if you're not going to back that up by feeding them spiritually, it becomes in some measure a pointless exercise. You know, I'm always brought to the point where I remember, and I think I've shared this with you before, but I don't mind sharing it again. When I was in India, and I don't wish to name drop, but we were talking to K.P. Yohannan, who was the founder of Gospel for Asia. And they have a tremendous ministry going in India. And they feed the poor, and they house the poor, and they take the kids to school, and they've got this outfit called the Bridge of Hope that just looks after kids and tells them about Jesus, etc. And he said, I said, you know, that's a wonderful thing that you're doing here. I says, but, I said, you need to be careful. He says, why do I need to be careful? I says, because this is exactly the way the church in my country started. I said, the church in Scotland started. We started off by preaching the word. We started off by proclaiming the gospel. And then we get into the social side of things. We get into feeding people, which is fine. And we get into supplying them with clothes and we supply meeting their needs and that was fine that was great but the gospel and the word of God started to take a back seat I says and now all we've got is a social gospel that Christ has never mentioned we just feed the poor and, and there's nothing wrong with that I don't, don't, please go and get me wrong I says but when we lose the gospel and he said hold on what you're saying Jim he says I'll guarantee you that as long as I'm alive the gospel will be foremost in gospel for Asia's ministry he says that the rest of it is peripheral. People have to be saved. It's their souls that are important first. And that's where we should be. Yes, it's fine to feed the poor. It's fine. The food banks and all the rest, they have no issue with that at all. But they need to hear the gospel. When people ask, why are you giving me this food? You're giving me it because Jesus loves you. And I love you. And you, the gospel has to be in there. Otherwise, otherwise you might as well just be a social work department. So the people are hungry. And who's going to give them something to eat? Jesus and the disciples at this point in time could have given them many excuses. As sometimes I suppose I do. When people come looking for ministry and all the rest of it. And you think, well maybe this is not the right time. Or maybe we should talk about it later. When somebody approaches you, we need to be aware that this is the time. That's the time. That God-appointed time, there, then, now. It's not, come back and see me next Thursday, or I'll, I'll fit you in on Friday morning, if you can come. We need to be able to tell them something, there and then. There needs to be that morsel of bread, that piece of bread that will encourage them until such times as we can do something for them on a deeper level. So it would be easy for them to make excuses and say, well, it's not the right place, you know, this is not the place to be feeding all these people. Just send them away and, and let them do their own thing. So Jesus asked them, what do you have? What have you got? The disciples, the disciples who were rolling around laughing and going crazy thinking, do you want us to feed them? In fact, in one of the other Gospels it said that Philip told them, Jesus, if, even if we had a year's wages each, we wouldn't have enough money to feed these people. So what are you talking about? I mean, get real, Jesus. And Jesus turned around to them and said, So what have you got? 
verse 17 he says we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish and we know from the other gospels as we read them together that this was a small boy that had come forward and offered what he had five loaves and two fishes and Jesus took it and he broke it and he blessed it and he gave it to the disciples and said here feed the people now I don't know how this worked it's one of the greatest miracles I can ever think of it just I mean when Jesus was putting out his hands was it just loaves and fishes that just kept appearing I don't know but there was something miraculous going on here just as he blessed it and he spoke to his father and asked for that divine intervention the food went out bring them here to me verse 18 he said and he directed the people to sit down in the grass now it wouldn't be normal to get people to sit down in the grass and we know that he ordered them it was almost as if and I say this for my own belief it was almost as if he was organising a banquet we realise for the other gospels that he was he organised them in rows of fifties and, and hundreds etc there was a real order to this it wasn't as if he was just kind of handing out food willy nilly there was a real order to this it was almost as if it was a banquet and I'm always reminded of the story that Jesus told the parable of the great feast when the king had made the great feast and he said to his servants go out and, and the invited guests that were invited tell them to come and of course these invited guests this was a parable again you have to think about it the invited guests were actually the Jewish people that's what Jesus was talking about the people who have been invited the people who were supposed to know who Jesus was who the Messiah was tell them to come in and many of them made excuses and said well we can't come just now because we've got a field to plough and we can't come just now because my, my father's funeral's coming or we can't all the excuses under the sun and when they came back and told the master of the feast he said go out into the highways and the byways into the streets and the corners and bring in whoever will come the lame, the sick, the blind it doesn't matter bring them all in and in some measure that's a picture of this feast this banquet a miraculous gathering of people which you and I will be at a, a, a prefiguration of the marriage supper of the Lamb there will be everybody and their uncle there there'll be people there that you didn't think would be there and there'll be people not there who you thought should be there but the choice is not ours because as we said last week there'll be many coming that day and say Lord, Lord and he'll say go away from me, I never knew you so the people are hungry and Jesus feeds them circumstances don't need to make you go away you won't have things so hard or so easy that you don't need Jesus life's not going to be too hard and it's not going to be too soft no matter what your life is no matter what circumstances you're in you need Jesus and we don't need to walk away from Jesus why Why somebody who preaches peace and love and, and, and salvation and eternal life why would people want to walk away and yet many do there should be nothing in Jesus that would make us want to go away but the problem is that we are imperfect when people look at us they should be seeing Jesus 
But unfortunately they see the imperfect. Particularly in us as leaders. So I say to you again, as a leader in here, there will be times when I let you down. There will be times when you're not happy with what I do or say. And at that point in time, if I've offended you, then you'll have to forgive me. Because I'm not perfect. And there is nothing in your future that will need that you will need to go away from Jesus. Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. Whatever he done for you yesterday and he's doing for you today, he will do again for you tomorrow. That salvation in him is secure. You don't need to worry about it. Many people have come to Jesus and walked away and we saw that in the parable of the sower and these other kingdom parables that, were, that Jesus explained to us. But here we have somebody and you might end up in a situation where you think, well, what can I offer Christ? This wee boy came with five loaves and two fishes. What do you have? Whatever it is, bring it to Jesus. He'll do the miracle with it. It doesn't matter what your gifting is. It doesn't matter whether you're making the tea or whether you're cleaning the floor or whether you're the pastor of the church. It doesn't matter. Bring what you have to Jesus and Jesus will do the miracle with it. You don't need to be left out. Just bring it. Bring your five loaves and your two fishes and watch Jesus do the multiplication. You notice that this was not a, an addition. This was a multiplication. I mean, here's this huge banquet of people. I mean, I tried to visualize it. 12,000 people sat in the grass. And somebody's looking around and saying, where's the caterer? Well, we've not got a caterer. It's just uh, bread for heaven, you know. It's, uh, it's Jesus up there. He's just, he must have it in his back pocket or something because it just keeps coming. You can imagine that at Strathclyde Park, 12,000 people in the grass. And they're all wondering, where's all this food coming from? And there's nobody there apart from Jesus. It's a wonderful thing. He directed the people to sit down in the grass at verse 18. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. It's interesting, of course, that Matthew tells us that he gave thanks. We should always give thanks for our food. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people and they all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about five thousand men besides women and children. Jesus took what they had, blessed it, did a miracle and he can do the same with you. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. He'll do the same with you. And the wonderful thing here at the end of this is they picked up 12 basketfuls. When Jesus works a miracle, there's no waste. He even uses the leftovers. When Jesus works a miracle, there's always basketfuls of miracles left. For whoever would want them. If you need a miracle this morning, then maybe today's the day. Maybe this is the point. Where God is touching your heart and saying, Give me your five loaves and two fishes, and I'll do the miracle for you. You know, such was the effect on the people at this point in time. If we read the Gospels, the other Gospels concerning this, that they wanted to make him king. 
There was, he was at the height of his popularity. I mean, just think about it. 12,000 people. You would have to have six services a day in this place every day of the week to get 12,000 people to church just in this building. And my miracle for this church, for this fellowship is that one day we'll open that barrier and we'll be right to the back of the hall, full. Because people will be crying out to be fed by Jesus Christ. They wanted to make him king. They wanted to proclaim him to be the Messiah, the son of David, the great prophet. But his time hadn't come. They understood the word of God. They understood the Old Testament. They saw what was happening. These 12,000 people who were nobodies. They were just anonymous people. There was no wonderful people about them who were going to sign up Jesus for a contract in television or whatever. These were just the ordinary people of the Galilee. The Decapolis, Perea, the whole surrounding area. They just came. 12,000 people. And at verse 22, because of this, this notion that they wanted to make him king, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into a boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. <clears throat> well, he dismissed the crowd. And after he had dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. And later that night he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. One of the things that I always take out of this story is that Jesus always made time for prayer. Always. There was never a time that he didn't want to pray. You know, I encourage you to make time for prayer. Whether it's coming to the prayer meeting on a Wednesday night, whether it's prayer at the in-betweenies, whether it's prayer at the women's meetings, whether it's prayer at the men's meetings, whatever. Make time for prayer. Whether it's private prayer or whether it's public prayer. That private personal prayer, that prayer when you can bear your soul to the Lord and find the solace in Him, find the forgiveness in Him. Or the public worshipful prayer that we heard this morning from Brian, where he expresses our view of the exaltation of the Lord. It doesn't matter what it is, there's a place for it all, and there's a time for it all, but there's a time for plenty of it. If ever we needed to pray, it's today. For the unsaved in this world. For the unsaved in our families. We seem to have some sort of apathy about the people who are unsaved. The backsliders. It's important that these people know Jesus. Or at least, as we saw from the parables in chapter 13, it's important that they are at least told about it. They may not receive it. They may not understand it. They may think, well, it's just going over the top of my head. But you've spoken the word. And that's all that God requires of you. So there was a terrible storm brew up here. And one of the Gospels, it tells us that Jesus could see them. Although he was up the mountain and it was dark, he could see them straining into the wind. They were on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee and they were going back over to the west. So this tells me that the wind was coming for the west because they were rowing against the wind and there was a great howling gale coming against them. The Sea of Galilee gets very stormy. There's a couple of mountain peaks just to the west of Tiberias in the southwest corner. They're called the, the Horns of Hatton. 
They're two extinct volcanoes. And when the wind comes in off the sea, this moist, humid wind comes in off the Mediterranean Sea, it seems to get funneled down between these two peaks. And and because there's no way over, it gets pushed through the gap, and of course it accelerates as it comes through, and it suddenly rushes out the other side, over the top of Tiberias, and this huge wind literally explodes across the Sea of Galilee. It comes from nowhere. And suddenly you go for a flat calm, to seven, eight, nine foot waves just being blown across this. And this, to me, is what was happening to these. Whether it was a natural thing, whether it was demonic, whether it was... We don't really know. But there was certainly something going on here. These were... Most of them were experienced fishermen. Most of them knew what they were doing. And yet they were struggling in this storm. But you know, where... With the feeding of the 5,000, they'd accepted the word of God and, and obeyed the word of God. Jesus had told them, go and give them the five loaves and the two fishes. And they'd taken it and gone and did it. So they had obeyed the word of God. Here, they were obeying the word of God as well. Because Jesus made the disciples. He made them get into the boat. They obviously didn't want to leave them, but he made them get into the boat. And he told them, go on ahead of me to the other side. And that was Jesus speaking the word of God to these people. I'm telling you, get in the boat and go to the other side. Now no matter how they felt about it, no matter how bad the storm was going to get, we can look back and say, if Jesus said it was going to happen, it will happen. That they would get to the other side. But they were stuck halfway. They were rowing, they were tired. It was the middle of the night. The other Gospels tell us it was somewhere between 3 and 6 o'clock in the morning. And they were really, obviously hadn't slept. And they were rowing quite hard. And there was a real problem. Jesus told them to go to the other side. And they sailed out there believing on the word of God. And shortly before dawn, at verse 25, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking in the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. The darkest hour, just before the dawn. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you in the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked in the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. I think it was Lance Ralston at the conference who said, you know, this story wasn't the story of the 11 dry boys in the boat. This was the story of the one wet guy out in the water. And there is a point to be made here that these guys, any rabbi who had disciples following after him, they literally walked in his shoes. Wherever he went, they went. Wherever he slept, they slept. Whatever he, they, he ate, they ate. It was literally discipleship by example. Whatever the rabbi did, the disciples did. And in some measure, that's what Peter was trying to do here. They saw Jesus coming to them walking in the water. A very private miracle going on here. 
We had a very public miracle with 12,000 people. And now we've got a very private miracle. Astonishing miracle. Jesus walking in the water. In the middle of nine foot waves. This huge storm blowing up. Jesus is walking through it. How he did it, I don't know. But there we are. That's the miracle of it. But Peter, being a disciple of Jesus, having walked where he walked, having ate where he ate, having slept where he slept, now decides, well, if you really are, if you're Jesus, if you're my rabbi, you tell me to come and I'll come. And Jesus said, well, come. If you want to walk in my shoes, then come. So Peter got out of the boat. I mean, it's crazy. It's just crazy. Peter got out of the boat. Peter got out of the boat and walked in water. And then Jesus said to him, Well, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? I think Jesus must have been laughing at me at the time. You know, walking in water. And then he saw the wind around him and he lost heart and he took his eyes off the Lord. And There are so many sermons in here that's unbelievable. But anyway... Lord save me. And Jesus lifted him up, you know. And the picture that all I always get when I look about this is Jesus and Peter hand in hand walking back to the boat. Just and the smile on Jesus' faith of Peter. Well you have little faith. To me his faith was enormous. He got out of the boat. There's no way I was getting out of the boat in nine foot waves. And yet he did. So it just shows you. It just shows you what you can do. Just with a little faith. The disciples did it. When they fed the 5,000 or the 12,000. It was just a little faith. Just believe Jesus. Just take what I give you and give it to the people. Just come out of the boat Peter. It doesn't take much. Jesus knows who we are. He knows we're of dust. It just takes that little bit of faith. The troubles of the storm overwhelmed him and he lost his focus. We often lose our focus when things come against us. Use what faith you have to honour God. Was Jesus angry with Peter? No. It's like teaching a child to walk, isn't it? When you get them in the house and you stand them at one end or the dad gets them at one end and the mother's at the other just going, come on, come on, come on, come on. And the dad lets them go and off they go. <laughs> And of course, the last thing they want to see is a frown on their mother or father's face. It's a big smile. Even if they only make one step, it's yay, well done. And it encourages them. That's the faith. The faith of a little child. They trust their mother and father. We should trust our father as well. I'm going to finish there because I think the kids are going to come in and sing us a song for Father's Day. Are we angry when children don't walk? No, we're proud. We're proud of the child who has the faith to do it. And God is proud of you today. In the right sense of the word. That you are his. You belong to him. You're a people who can bring your five loaves and two fishes and be blessed by it. You're a people who if, even if you find yourselves in the storms of life, Christ can work the miracle and come and meet you in the middle of that storm. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you and praise you for your encouragement in our hearts this morning. We thank you, Lord, that, that these are no made-up stories, Lord, that these are not just sort of known events, Lord, that these actually happened, that we see the history, we, 
Herod Antipas and John the Baptist and Jesus and all the political ramifications that were going on around this time. And Father, we thank you that through it all we can see the light of salvation shining through it, Father. That great light of the world that was Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would encourage us with it this morning. For those, Lord, who feel that they've got nothing to offer you, Lord, I pray that they would just be prepared to come with whatever little they have and offer it to you, Father. And I know that you'll bless it and work that miracle. So be with us today, Father, and bless us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.